Welcome to another episode of the Myths That Make Us podcast. Uh, today, I'm going to read the article that I wrote called, What is Trauma? Um, I think and I can feel that this is one of the most important things that I've written to date. It for sure is the longest thing that I've written to date. And I want to record it to maximize the amount of people that can be exposed to this information because I think it's incredibly important for us to understand what trauma is, how it's not a reflection of weakness of character or anything like that, that it's a function of biology and that it actually has some beautiful aspects to it as well. Um, if you would like to support the podcast, the most direct ways that you can do that is to get on my email list and to share my newsletter whenever you feel called to, um, to also share the podcasts whenever you feel called to, and to check out my journaling course and to share it with people. That's the main way that the blood that is money flows into the organism that is my company. And, um... Thank you guys, as always, for offering your attention and your love to this podcast. We're going to get into it. What is trauma? Opening quote. If you bring forth that which is within you, then that which is within you will be your salvation. If you do not bring forth that which is within you, then that which is within you will destroy you. The Gnostic Gospels. Introduction. My life sometimes feels like a remembering rather than a living. At times, I feel like I'm being guided by something that already knows the song of my life, like my lived life is my future self remembering me. My research into trauma has brought this feeling back. As I begin to grasp her principles and her methods, I'm seeing how my childhood academic interests, and dharma have all colluded in constructing the being that is me to understand trauma and to be transformed by it. My childhood was a tour de force in witnessing beautiful humans struggling with undiagnosed and untreated trauma. I think most of ours were. And then there were the branches of the tree of my academic passions. First there was my pull to mythology which led to a love for psychology and dreams. In college, as I pursued my bachelor's of science in cognitive psychology, I became obsessed with pragmatic philosophy, evolutionary biology, ethology, phenomenology, and the modern revolutions in neuropsychobiology. My childhood and my academic explorations have been weaved together into a beautiful tapestry by my dharma. Our dharma is our sacred task that we are born into the world to fulfill. Mine is to help people heal themselves, and sitting at the feet of the spirit of trauma has taught me. We all have trauma inside of us, and we all have the inner resources to heal our trauma, and when we do, we will be transformed by it. A Story of Psyche and Entropy before once upon a time, there was the one, the void. Out of the void arose the first lovers. From the one came the two, psyche and entropy. Psyche was the birth of life. Entropy was the birth of death. 
Psyche looked upon the void and said, wouldn't it be beautiful for something to be? And on the magic of her pneumatic words, life began to expand into the void. Entropy looked upon the beauty of his love's creations and committed to her. Before the void, I vow to serve the becoming of your creations, to make them as beautiful as possible. And on the magic of his pneumatic words, a fate was bound. As Psyche made life, entropy transformed life. This was their lovemaking. Through their dance, they gave birth to growth. The two became the three, and from the three came the ten thousand. The dance of psyche and entropy sparked the beginning of every once upon a time. I imagine psyche as a goddess unfolding through the void of the universe like a great cosmic tree spreading her roots. Trauma are points where the roots collide with the love of entropy. Every encounter of entropy is an opportunity for Psyche to grow, and Psyche wants nothing else but to grow. Each trauma healed teaches Psyche how to create something more beautiful. Each of us are a tendril of this great living tree, and each of us updates the collective as we process and heal our trauma. To heal your trauma is to add fruit to the grand tree of Psyche. Trauma and its symptoms and how it is healed is understood when we understand that the ultimate will of Psyche is to grow. Psyche seeks, constantly, to reestablish order in the being that has been traumatized. What heals trauma is the physical or symbolic completion of adaptive action that would have, quote, solved the original traumatic experience. The details of this will be explored throughout this article, but the gist is that trauma is essentially a question to the psyche. What is the adaptive response to this experience? The question unanswered creates traumatic symptoms. The question answered creates transformation. The gift of trauma is that if the question can be answered, the wound of trauma becomes the womb through which the organism is transformed, is reborn. Trauma is a cocoon. Traumatic symptoms are the birth pangs of the butterfly. Trauma healed gives us our wings. So an overview of this article. Number one is going to be, what is trauma? Number two is the animal and the artist. Section three is the animal's response to trauma. Section four, the three types of trauma. Section five, the symptoms of trauma. Section six, how to heal trauma. And the last section, Medusa rising, interpreting the myth of trauma. What is trauma? The four-dimensional being. The etymology of trauma is wound. Trauma was first recognized as a wound to the physical body, but recent research is helping us remember that we also have an emotional body and a narrative body. This has to do with the different types of memory humans are capable of. All three bodies can be traumatized. To understand this, we need to reframe what a human being is. Because of memory, humans are four-dimensional beings. 
If we could see someone's fourth dimension, we would see their emotional and narrative history extending backwards behind them like a snake. Our memories are alive now in the same way that our entire three-dimensional body is alive now. If you could see someone's past, they would look like a long snake-like creature with their head being their present selves and their tail The furthest thing away from the present self would be the moment their mother's egg and father's sperm merge to create the zygote. That would be their beginning. The key here is that their narrative and emotional history are built by memory. All of us have this fourth dimensional body, the emotional body and the story body, and its limbs and joints and muscles are not created by what actually happened to us but how we remember what happened to us. Trauma is a kind of memory. There are two primary memory systems that make up our fourth dimension. Number one is somatic memory. This is the emotional body. And number two is narrative memory. This is the story body. We'll cover this more in the next section. Trauma is a wounding at some point on this four-dimensional creature's body. If we adopt this four-dimensional model of the human's emotional body, we will understand that our entire history is alive and potentially active in the present moment. People bring their histories with them wherever they go. And in the same way our physical body has a natural healing response to a physical wound, our psyche has a natural healing response to an emotional wound. But in the same way that the body cannot heal unless the wound is cleaned and the object removed, our psyche cannot heal if the wound is not cleaned or if the object is not removed. To remove the object of trauma, we must complete the actions that our body knew needed to be done in the moment of the traumatic experience. To exist is to receive woundings. As a finite being embedded in infinity, there is no escaping it. To live is to know trauma, and knowing trauma does not make you broken, unworthy, unlovable, dirty, or damaged. Trauma is a sacred wound, and cleaning this wound is a sacred task. The Animal and the Artist The woe of Western civilization is that we've decapitated our minds from our bodies. We've cut the story body off from the emotional body. We've dubbed the intellect divine and the body foul. If we look to ancient civilizations, the Egyptians, the cave paintings of Mesoamerica, and nearly every shamanic lineage we have record of, we see the gods as half human, half animal. There is deep wisdom here. We are animals and artists. And when we look at the foundational Western myths, our heroes are killing the animals. First, we have the story of Gilgamesh, the oldest hero myth. He is the master of animals. He slays the snake in the garden of Inanna. Then we have Hercules, who kills countless animals presented as monsters and cleans the horse stables of King Aegeus. And later, there is Moses, who condemns the worship of the golden cow. Embedded in Western culture's myths, is the archetypical denial and repression of our animal nature. These myths were the precursor to Descartes who declared, I think, therefore I am. 
and thus the beginning of the modern disassociation from the animal body had officially acquired its anthem. However, the first famous heretic was Darwin and his blasphemous book on the origin of species. Then Jung came with his archetypes, and finally the Russian neurologist discovered the empirical and biological foundation of the archetypes. What these heretics discovered, really what they rediscovered, is that humans are animals first, storyteller second. We instinct first, feel emotion second, and only lastly, do we think. To understand trauma, we must remember ourselves. We must bring the severed head of modern man back to his animal body. We must remember that we are dual-natured. We are both an animal and an artist. The animal houses our instincts and our emotions, and the artist is the part that thinks, that tells stories. And this is critical for understanding trauma. The first step to healing trauma is to connect our minds back to our bodies, to connect the animal to the artist. The animal. There is a story where a father takes his son bird watching. The child has never seen a bird before and is in awe at the amazing movement, shape, and agility of these dancing aerial creatures as they flutter through the sky. After some repetition, the father teaches the son that these creatures are called birds. The moment the boy learns the word bird, he never sees the creatures again. The mystery has been replaced by a word, and the boy now only sees the linguistic category bird. The word body is like this. We say the word all the time. We have a vague, low-resolution concept in our mind about what a body is. But if we step out of the word and contemplate the mystery for a moment... The body is absolutely incomprehensibly baffling. Our bodies are the result of a multi-trillion year process that began inside of the Big Bang. Our core materials were forged in the furnaces of stars exploding. The genetic code that build and maintain our bodies every day has been churning, learning, and transforming through hundreds of thousands of different bodies, our ancestors generation after generation, combining and recombining their materials constantly seeking greater adaptation to the world it finds itself in. Our bodies are the result of the lovemaking of psyche and entropy for aeons. We are living inside the most sophisticated spacesuit for embodying consciousness on planet Earth. Understanding the nature of the human-animal body is a fundamental part of the modern mental health revolution and the understanding of trauma. Our bodies have evolutionary histories, and the imprint of those histories come with us when we are born. These histories are our instincts and the archetypes. If we use a computer metaphor, instincts are the hardware and archetypes are the default programs that come installed on your computer that you can't delete. Instincts and archetypes are evidence that the will of the intelligence that animates all life is always seeking to learn how to act more adaptively. Our instincts and the archetypes that guide us are the current accumulation of adaptive actions, psyche as body, has learned through our evolutionary history. 
and the function of our lives, as far as our bodies are concerned, is to continue this learning. The life force that animates your animal body is trying to learn how to respond adaptively to all life experiences. Traumas are experiences that require the animal to adapt. Traumatic symptoms are messages from the body that we have yet to complete the learning. You are an animal first, a human second. This animal has lived thousands of lives and has brought its memories with it into your body. The animal's memories are your instincts and your archetypes. One of the greatest gifts that you can give to yourself is to understand the instincts and archetypes that animate you. The artist. The artist is the part of our psyche that can use language. Connect to the fact for a moment that I am guiding your thoughts right now. I can make you think of a tree by simply saying the words, imagine a tree, feel its bark on your hands, smell its scent, watch the way the sun shines through the leaves. We are engaged in telepathy right now. My psyche, my voice is in you right now. We are also time traveling. As I speak these words, you are hearing them in my future. And as you hear these words, I, my now, my present, is your past. With language, we can put our minds into other minds, and we can move our minds backwards and forwards in time. Language allows the psyche to space and time travel. Language also allows us to tell stories, and stories may be the most powerful technology in the known universe. Humans can only wage war with stories. Humans can only build cities with stories. Humans will only be able to save this planet from ourselves with new stories. Our individual lives are founded in stories. Our families, cities, states, nations, and civilizations rest upon stories. And this divine power is held by the youngest and the weakest part of our brains. One of the most popular metaphors psychologists currently use to describe the relationship between the animal and the artist is what is called the elephant and the rider metaphor. The oldest and most powerful parts of the brain are powered by instincts and emotions. This is our elephant in the metaphor. The newest and most easily overpowered part of the brain, the cortex, is where we language make and story create. This is the rider. And the most important part of this metaphor to understand is the artist, the writer, has evolved to tell stories that justify the feelings and the actions of the elephant, the animal. As it applies to trauma, if your animal is wounded, your artist is going to be compelled to tell stories about the world that justify the wound to the animal and the subsequent coping behaviors that the animal chooses to protect itself with. To liberate the artist, to be free to tell beautiful stories about your life, we must first heal the animal. The storytelling part of you is one of the most powerful aspects of your psyche. If the animal is wounded, our stories about ourselves and the world skew towards darkness. The biology of the animal and the artist. 
For the context of trauma, it is useful to imagine that the brain's primary function is to learn adaptive behaviors for the body to survive on the planet. The oldest part of our brain, called the reptilian brain in the triune brain model, stores the oldest adaptive behaviors our bodies have learned through thousands of lifetimes. These are our instincts. All organisms on the planet share the instincts that live in the reptilian brain. The next eldest part of the brain is what's called the mammalian brain or the limbic brain. And this is where we host most of our emotions. We are social mammals. Over millions of years of living in groups, our brains developed a set of emotions specifically adapted to guide our behavior in groups. This is why you feel most of the emotions that you feel, to guide your adaptive social behavior based off of an evolutionary context. The reptilian brain and the mammalian brain make up the animal. Instincts are our memories that we've inherited for individual survival. Emotions are our memories that we've inherited for social survival. The youngest part of the brain, the cortex, is called the new brain or the primate brain, and this is the artist. This is the part of the brain that uses language, focuses conscious attention, and performs what we call our higher executive functions. Trauma is a question from entropy to psyche. What is the adaptive response to this experience? How do we grow from this? How do we transform from this into something more beautiful? First, our instincts attempt to solve the problem, to solve the question. If our instincts cannot answer the question of trauma, our emotions attempt to cope with the unanswered question of trauma. If neither our instincts or our emotions can solve the question of trauma, the storyteller unconsciously justifies the coping behaviors of the unanswered trauma. Trauma becomes traumatic if the question is not answered. To understand how this happens, we first need to understand our instinctual response to trauma. To understand how trauma becomes traumatic, we first need to understand how the animal tries to solve trauma through instincts. The animal's response to trauma. The animal is an ancient being who has lived thousands of lives on this planet, and everything it has learned is ingrained into you as the wisdom of the body, as instinct. A part of this wisdom of the body is to create your perception of reality. It is beyond the scope of this article to get into the details, but you don't see objective reality as it is. Your animal automatically categorizes the swirling atomic dance that is objective reality into evolutionarily adaptive categories. Enemy, friend, potential mate, object I can hold and throw, object I can eat, object that could kill me. These are constructs that our animal creates for us so that we can engage the world through adaptive action. Your animal has evolved to try to predict the meaning of all evolutionarily adaptive categories that it creates in your environment in each moment. Your animal is constantly comparing its expectation of your environment with the signals that your animal receives from the environment. You are essentially creating a simulation of what you expect to happen in every moment. 
And every animal with a spinal cord on the planet has a set of instincts that are activated when the expectation of the environment does not match the signals received from the environment. When something appears in your reality that you don't understand, the animal needs to determine as quickly as possible whether this anomaly is a threat, and thus a set of instincts are activated. There are three stages of the animal's instinctual response to anomalies. Number one, the orienting response. Number two, the fight, flight, or freeze response. And number three, discharging the fight, flight, or freeze response. Step one, the orienting response. Imagine that you're in a crowded cafe listening to this article and you hear a loud shatter. Every mammal in the cafe even your dog will perform the same set of behaviors all in less than one second. First, the vibration of the shatter will enter your ears and the difference in time between the vibration entering your ears will guide your eyes to the source of the sound intuitively. As your head instinctively turns to locate the source of the sound, your heart will begin to pump more blood to your muscles. Your eyes will widen to take in more visual information and you will hold your breath as you calculate what action needs to be taken. This is the orienting response. This is essentially the quickly swiveled head, the expanded eyes, and the holding of breath. And it is hardwired into your nervous system to activate before your conscious mind even begins to respond to the potential threat. The animal has had to survive in the presence of lunging snakes and stalking cats for thousands of years and this instinct has been honed over millennia to protect you. Once you have oriented, the animal assesses the actions it needs to perform. And that leads us to number two, the fight or flight response. Once we orient towards the anomaly, we instantly begin to assess its danger and how we should respond to it. In our cafe example, most organisms in the room will have a memory of what glass breaking in a cafe means. They will see an embarrassed waitress cleaning up the mess and will know it is not dangerous. The animal will return back to the biological baseline it was at before the sound. But imagine, instead of an embarrassed barista, you see a man with a gun. A waitress is laying unconscious on the floor, and the man is waving his gun in your direction. Before your conscious mind is aware of a thought, your heart rate will elevate drastically. Your digestion will shut down as the majority of your blood is powerfully pumped to the muscles for potential action. You may flip the table over and use it as cover, a form of fight. You may bolt for the closest exit, a form of flight. Whichever you choose, the instincts coursing through your body in these few critical moments are some of the most powerful sensations a human can feel. If standing one's ground or escaping is not felt by the animal as a viable solution, the body will choose our last survival option, the freeze response. Step 2B, the freeze response. Because the freeze response is so important to trauma, it deserves its own section. Humans have an interesting evolutionary history. Throughout our development, we have been both prey and predators, and so we have both the fight or flight response, which is a predator instinct, 
and we have the freeze response, which is a prey instinct. The freeze response is an instinct most prey animals have. The evolutionary benefit of the freeze response is fourfold. Number one, the predator may drop its guard thinking the prey is dead and this will allow the prey to possibly escape. Number two, freezing appears as dead to predators and unless they are very hungry, predators tend not to eat, quote, dead meat. Number three, most predators require movement from prey to trigger their chase and kill instincts. And number four, the freeze response numbs the prey, which reduces the subjective experience of pain. Now imagine that we are back in the cafe and the gunman starts shooting. People are screaming and running. Some are bleeding. And instead of running, you freeze. You would feel your heart pumping so hard that you would feel your rib cage may crack, yet you couldn't move. You'd notice that you are barely breathing. Outwardly, you are frozen. Inwardly, your entire body is on fire. And it is the freeze response that is the critical factor for most people's experience of PTSD. The freeze response can create PTSD symptoms if the fight, flight, or freeze cycle is never completed. This is something that I will repeat throughout this article, but this is maybe the most important point of about what creates PTSD. If you encounter something that is terrifying and you either try to fight it or run from it or you freeze, if you don't complete whatever the adaptive action was in that moment, your body, the animal part of you, will always be acting as if it is in the presence of a predator. And I'll get more into this. I'm getting ahead of myself. So below this part, I have a video where it shows an impala who has been captured by a lion and it looks like it's dead. But then the lion gets distracted by something and walks away for a moment. And then the impala slowly starts to do deep, huge belly breathing and slowly starts to stand up. And then it has full body seizures for a couple of seconds and then it shakes it out and then it runs away. These videos are very important for people who believe that they might have trauma to watch because it shows you physiologically what steps need to be taken to move out of the stuck instinctual response. So if you want to find this video on YouTube, it's called Impala In and Slowly Out of Collapsed Immobility. Step three, discharging. If fight or flight is chosen, the body will release a powerful mixture of chemicals and hormones to perform whatever action the animal has deemed adaptive. As the energy is used through running, lifting, fighting, etc., the expenditure of the energy is the signal to the body that it can relax again, that the threat is gone. This is worth repeating. The fight or flight response knows that it is out of the presence of the life-threatening danger once it has completed the action that the animal felt was an adaptive response to the threat. Completing the behaviors that were instinctually demanded in the presence of the trauma is the indicator to the body that it can relax again. However, the splinter of trauma wounds the emotional body of the animal if the instinct cycle is not completed. The absence of the discharging 
tells the animal that the threat has not been solved. If the freeze response is chosen and not shaken out, or if the fight or flight response is blocked, this powerful instinctual response to a life-threatening stimulus stays activated for weeks or months or years or decades. This leads to the seemingly weird and random symptoms associated with trauma. More on this will be covered in the symptoms section. This next video may be the most important video someone who has gone through trauma can watch. If you want to find it on YouTube, it's called Polar Bear Not Getting Traumatized. I will explain essentially what the video shows. There are biologists who are tracking down polar bears to test you know, their blood and different things. And they're in a helicopter and they're chasing down this bear and this bear is sprinting over the tundra. They shoot it with a tranquilizer and the bear collapses. They take the tests that they need from the bear and the lead biologist, because he's done this so often, he knows what to look for. As the tranquilizer starts to wear off, you see the bear start doing the super massive deep belly breathing. And after it does that breathing for a while, it starts to twitch. Its whole body starts to twitch. Its jaw starts to twitch. It looks like it's having a massive seizure. And the biologist is, is explaining, you know, it was very stressful for the bear to be chased like that. And it's getting rid of the stress. I'm going to read what Peter Levine has explained about this video. And then if it feels right, I'll elaborate more on it. But so the bear is being chased and then is tranquilized. The tranquilization interrupts the flight response. As the bear comes out of the sedation, it instinctively knows how to discharge the powerful instinctual energy that seized it. It trembles and convulses. Then it begins deep energy clearing breathing. Your animal knows how to do this. Watch this video and let your conscious mind see what it looks like to do this. You will likely have to do your own version of this at some point to clear shock trauma. The trauma healing pioneer Peter Levine discovered people holding trauma have to go through this discharge, the trembling and deep breathing. The subtle yet revolutionary discovery is that the tremors are really micro movements of the actions the organism needed to take during the traumatic situation in order to survive. Here's his quote on the bear video. When the bear's response is viewed in slow motion, it becomes obvious that the seemingly random leg gyrations are actually coordinated running movements. It is as though the animal completes its escape by actively finishing the running movements that were interrupted at the moment when it was tranquilized. Then the bear shakes off the frozen energy as it surrenders in spontaneous full body breaths. All mammals have a set of instincts to respond to danger. If the danger triggers the freeze response or psychologically or physiologically inhibits the fight or flight response, humans will tend to show symptoms of post-traumatic stress. And if we learn how to allow the body to complete the action, we will see our symptoms fade away. 
Traumatic symptoms are messengers from the animal to the artist that we have not completed the learning. The animal is asking the artist to help it complete the learning experience. To understand what actions need to be taken to complete the learning experience, let's look at the three major types of trauma. Types of trauma. Number one, narrative trauma, aka artistic trauma. Number two, shock trauma. This is what's classically understood as PTSD. And number three, developmental trauma. This is what's called complex PTSD. Number one, narrative trauma. Deriving from the Latin narrativas, meaning to tell a story, narrative trauma is when one is unable to understand and integrate the meaning of the traumatic experience into the story of their lives. Exploring the depths and subtleties of how humans build a personal, illusory world through language is one of the most fascinating aspects of psychology, but it is beyond the scope of this article. The gist that is important here is that humans use unconscious and conscious stories to reduce the infinite complexity of the world to manageable, quote, chunks. And narrative trauma is when an event happens to us that destabilizes a, quote, critical mass of our overall story, which destabilizes the meaning of our lives. Narrative trauma is a wound to the artist. Here are two examples. The soldier that commits evil. A soldier believes he is fundamentally a good person. While at war, a child carries a bomb towards his platoon and our soldier shoots the child. Not only does he kill a child, but he feels in his body at the moment of the kill a kind of animalistic pleasure that completely destroys his story of himself. He now has to integrate the truth that he is not only someone who has killed a child, but a part of him enjoyed doing so. He did not freeze, and his fight-or-flight response was not inhibited or stopped, but he now does not know who or what he is. He lives with the shame and a guilt that eats him. The wife that is no longer a wife. A married woman of 13 years comes home to find her husband has left her a note saying that he has had an affair for the last seven years and is moving out to marry this other woman. Our protagonist's past, present, and future are all changed in this single moment of note reading. Who she thought she was is now a lie. Where she thought her life was going is now wrong, and she is no longer a married woman. She is now a single woman heading towards divorce. Again, she did not freeze in the presence of a threat, and she did not have her fight-or-flight instinct suppressed, but she lives with a sense of confusion and self-hatred that eats her. These two stories are examples of trauma to our artist, when one of our primary stories about who we are die in the presence of a new story, we tend to enter a kind of depression or grief. This is narrative trauma. And if you are interested in exploring how to heal narrative trauma, read my article on expressive writing at erigazzi.com. Number two is shock trauma. And this is a quote by Basil von der Kolk, who wrote, The Body Keeps the Score. Traumatic memories are fundamentally different from the stories that we tell about the past. They are disassociated, 
The different sensations that entered the brain at the time of the trauma are not properly assembled into a story, a piece of autobiography. Shock trauma is what most of us understand as classical post-traumatic stress disorder. This was first called shell shock after World War I. This kind of trauma is a wound to the animal. It occurs when the threat is so massive that we enter the freeze response or when we attempt the fight or flight response and it is inhibited either physically or psychologically. Trigger warning. This section may be triggering to veterans and those who have endured sexual abuse. Story number one, war. The classic example is when the soldier hears and feels a bomb explode next to him. His friend, who he had spent nearly every waking minute with the last 18 months, who was just standing next to him, is gone in the wake of the explosion. He sees pieces, a leg, a partial torso. His body instantly imprints the smell of burning flesh and ammunition, the sound of the incoming bomb, the dead stillness right before impact, the burst of wind, and the sound of the explosion itself sear into his somatic memory. He is frozen. His comrades have to come rescue him. One of them is injured. Another dies trying to save him. At some point, if he is lucky, his body will feel safe again, and he will tremble and shake. He may scream. He may weep. But until he does, the terror guilt and shame will live in his emotional body and will slowly eat his health story number two rape a woman is out at a bar she meets a man who buys her a drink as she begins to drink it her awareness fades out she comes to with this man on top of her raping her in her mind she is screaming she is trying to push this man off of her but her body is not moving a combination of the freeze response and the drugs he put in her drink keep her from being able to defend herself. The alcohol on his breath, the sound of his grunts, and the smell of his cologne sear into her somatic memory. Once he finishes and her body is able to function again, in a day she gets dressed and stumbles out of the apartment. She doesn't tell anyone. She refuses to believe that this has happened to her. At some point, if she is lucky, she will feel safe enough to revisit this traumatic moment. She will tremble and she will shake. Her arms and feet may begin to punch and kick the air above her. She may begin to scream no or scream for help. But until she does, the guilt and shame and terror of this moment will live in her emotional body and slowly eat her health. Story number three, surgery. A much less known but prevalent type of shock trauma comes from surgical procedures. A child has to get surgery for her appendicitis. As the anesthesia rolls into her body, she is terrified. She feels alone as she looks up at looming figures and masks. She wants to run and scream, but she can't. Although her conscious mind is offline, her animal still experiences the cut being made on her body, feels her insides being moved and manipulated. When she wakes up, if her parents are not there and if the bedside care is not impeccable, she may experience dread, abandonment, and a feeling of having been violated. At some point, if she is lucky, she will feel safe enough to revisit this experience and process her terror, her loneliness, and her abandonment. But until she does, these emotions will live in her emotional body and will slowly eat her health. 
a note of hope. These things happen every day. Our responses to them are natural, and we are designed to be able to heal from them when we learn how to get out of our own way and allow the healing process to do its thing. Number three, developmental trauma. Developmental trauma is when a human, as a child, repeatedly experiences trauma from a caretaker. This can be emotional, physical, or sexual abuse. The fundamental difference between narrative and shock trauma and developmental trauma is that developmental trauma destroys humans' natural attachment bonds. As social animals, we are hardwired to seek security, safety, protection, and nurturance from our caretakers. Our relationships with our caretakers mold the animal and the artist and how the organism builds relationships. If the caretaker is also the source of trauma, the animal and the artist find themselves in an impossible situation. How can I learn to love what hurts me? This kind of trauma is the hardest to heal. It is called complex PTSD for a reason. It will get its own post in the future, and the current best resource I have for people who either believe that they might have complex PTSD or are curious to learn more about it is Pete Walker's book called Complex PTSD. Shame, guilt, and fear are the gods that trap trauma. The gods that trap trauma in our emotional body is shame, guilt, and fear. The most important aspects of trauma I want to make clear as possible is there is nothing shameful about how you responded to your traumatic experience and you are not worthless, you are not broken or bad or dirty or useless or evil or any other adjective that you can think of. You are a human being who has been injured and you likely have not been properly diagnosed haven't been given effective healing tools, and have been raised in a culture that fundamentally does not understand trauma. And it can be healed. There are answers. And a growing community of healers, therapists, researchers, and policymakers are beginning to understand trauma and how to heal it. The next section is going to explore one of the most interesting aspects of trauma, the symptoms of trauma. The symptoms of trauma. The healing of trauma depends upon the recognitions of its symptoms. To understand the symptoms of trauma, let's review what we've covered. The will of psyche is to grow. Memory makes us a four-dimensional animal. Memory creates our emotional body. Trauma is a wound somewhere along our emotional body. Trauma is a question. And traumatic symptoms are the ways that the animal continues to ask the artist, what is the adaptive response to this? Traumatic symptoms are evidence that we have yet to answer the question. If our instincts attempted to answer the question trauma asked by activating the fight, flight, or freeze response, and it didn't complete the response, our animal is still living as if the trauma is happening now. This is what causes most of the symptoms that we see associated with trauma. Disclaimer, our symptoms to a traumatic experience and our journey of healing is specifically unique to each of us. The symptoms below are not diagnostic, but they can help bring you awareness. They have been collected by Peter Levine, a leading expert on trauma. 
there are roughly four stages of traumatic symptoms. The first tier is moments to days after the experience. The second tier is weeks to months after the experience. The third tier is months to years after the experience. And the fourth tier is years to decades after the experience. First tier symptoms, minutes to days after. When the animal experiences a threat, there are four symptoms that all humans exhibit. And these four symptoms are referred to as the core four responses to trauma. They are, number one, hypervigilance. Number two, constriction. Number three, disassociation. And number four, helplessness. Number one, hypervigilance. This is the bulging, scanning eyes. This is the animal on edge, anticipating a threat. Hypervigilance, when it occurs directly after the presence of trauma, is completely adaptive. However, continued hypervigilance after the traumatic experience is one of the core roots that create most of the symptoms that we see manifest over the weeks, months, and years that follow a traumatic experience. Hypervigilance is the animal at max alert. It is a nervous system that feels it is in the presence of potentially life-ending danger. Hypervigilance elevates the heart rate. It tells our sensorum to look for danger. When in this state, we anticipate threat. And if we get stuck in this high arousal state, neutral human faces feel threatening. Our digestion system doesn't work properly. We have a hard time breathing deeply. Our sleep is disrupted. We experience nightmares and night terrors. We startle more easily, and we will have a hard time concentrating, learning, or forming new memories. We are in a constant state of fear. We are living as if the traumatic threat is still present, because to our emotional body, it is. If this system is activated in the trauma holder, it is the first thing that has to be restored for healing to begin. Number two, constriction. Hypervigilance tells the animal it must be prepared to fight, flee, or freeze, and so our body constricts. Our muscles tense, our breathing, vision, posture, blood vessels all constrict. Even the way we literally perceive the world constricts. Again, if this happens in the moment of threat, this is completely adaptive. It prepares us to fight or run from the threat, but if this becomes a chronic state, we will likely have body pain, usually low back or shoulders slash neck. Our posture will fall into itself. We will hyper-focus on what we fear. Our breathing will be shallow, and this may give way to panic attacks. Number three is disassociation. David Livingston describes being attacked by a lion, and Peter Levine quotes this in his book to explain disassociation. I heard a shout, startled. In looking half round, I saw the lion just in the act of springing upon me. I was upon a little height. He caught my shoulder as he sprang, and we both came to the ground below together. Growling horribly close to my ear, he shook me as a terrier does a rat. The shock produced a stupor similar to that which seems to be felt by a mouse after the first shake of the cat. It caused a sort of dreaminess in which there was no sense of pain nor feeling of terror, though quite conscious of all that was happening. It was like what patients partially under the influence of chloroform describe 
who see all the operation but feel not the knife. This singular condition was not the result of any mental process. The shake annihilated fear and allowed no sense of horror in looking round at the beast. This peculiar state is probably produced in all animals killed by the carnivore, and if so, it is a merciful provision by our benevolent creator for lessening the pain of death. That's one of the best descriptions of what disassociation feels like and why it's evolutionarily adaptive. Disassociation is a perfect response to life-ending threats, but it can be radically disruptive if it becomes chronic. At its lowest volume, it will feel like a kind of spaciness. We feel removed from our lives, like there is a thin wall between ourselves and our sensations, thoughts, and emotions. We forget our keys. We tend to be clumsy, accumulating small or major injuries frequently. We have gaps in our memory. Parts of our bodies may feel numb or disconnected from our awareness, and we may black out when stressed or drinking alcohol and use drugs that help us aid in the continued disassociation. At its most severe, it can lead to multiple personality disorder. Some people can't even recognize their bodies in a mirror. There are four major types of disassociation. The first one is between consciousness and the body itself. Number two is from one part of the body from the rest of the body. Number three is the self being disassociated from emotions, thoughts, or sensations. And the last one is that the self is disassociated from the memory of the event. Disassociation deserves a special note. It is not shameful. It is a natural response to threat. It does not make you weak. It does not mean that you wanted what happened to you to happen to you, and disassociation is also the root that causes memories to be repressed. I have observed a natural intelligence in the psyche where it will withhold certain memories until it feels that the ego is strong enough to hold it. There is nothing shameful or wrong about repressed memories. When you are ready, the animal will reveal them to the artist. Number four, helplessness. The core spiritual wound of trauma is that the felt sense is that we are helpless and that we do not have the power to face the reality of life. At its lowest volume, this is procrastination, avoiding commitments and obligations, seeking to be rescued by others, and a general feeling of apathy towards life. At its highest volume, this is a chronic frozen response to life. We may refuse to drive or leave our homes. We are convinced that nothing we do matters, that life is not worth trying to improve, and we seek, through an action, to die. Only if these four symptoms become chronic and habitual do the second, third, and fourth tier symptoms arise. These symptoms become chronic when we don't complete the adaptive action our instincts attempted to perform in the moment of trauma. A quote by Peter Levine. These four symptoms comprise the core of the traumatic reaction and are the surest way to know that trauma has occurred if you can recognize how they feel. As the constellation of symptoms grows increasingly complex, some combination of these four components of the core of the traumatic reaction will always be present. When you can recognize them, these components will help you distinguish between symptoms that are due to trauma and those that are not. 
second-tier symptoms, few days to weeks to months after. All of the following symptoms are the result of the organism continuing to feel it is in the presence of danger. This arouses the nervous system and costs energy. These symptoms are actually adaptive responses from the nervous system to let off steam. They are not shameful. They are natural. Hypervigilance. Intrusive imagery or flashbacks. Extreme sensitivity to light and sounds. Hyperactivity. Exaggerated emotional or startle responses. Nightmares and night terrors. Abrupt mood swings like rage reactions or temper tantrums or shame. Reduced ability to deal with stress. Easily or frequently stressed out. Difficulty sleeping. Third tier symptoms, months to years after. How the traumatic symptoms unfold is unique for each person, and some of the previous stages symptoms may not appear until now. As the animal continues to stay in hypervigilance, the months and years of hyperarousal, disruptive sleep, and chronic fear continue to tax the body. And so the symptoms look like panic attacks, mental blankness or spaciness, exaggerated startle response, extreme sensitivity to light and sound, hyperactivity, exaggerated emotional responses, nightmares and night terrors, avoidance behavior, attraction to dangerous situations, frequent crying, abrupt mood swings such as rage, temper tantrums, or shame, exaggerated or diminished sexual activity, amnesia and forgetfulness, an inability to love or nurture or bond with others, an irrational fear of dying or going crazy or having a shortened life, reduced ability to deal with stress, difficulty sleeping. Fourth tier symptoms, years or decades after. Again, how the traumatic symptoms unfold is unique to each person, and some of the previous stages symptoms may not appear until later. As the animal continues to stay in hypervigilance, the months and years of hyperarousal, disrupted sleep, and chronic fear continues to tax the body. Excessive shyness, muted or diminished emotional responses, inability to make commitments, chronic fatigue or very low physical energy, immune system problems and certain endocrine issues, psychosomatic illnesses like headaches, neck and back pain, asthma, depression, feelings of impending doom, feelings of detachment, alienation, and isolation. Diminished interest in life. Fear of dying, going crazy, or having a shortened life. Frequent crying. Abrupt mood swings. Exaggerated or diminished sexual activity. Amnesia and forgetfulness. Feelings and behaviors of helplessness. An inability to love or nurture or bond with others. Difficulty sleeping. Reduced ability to deal with stress and to formulate plans. The demonic symptom, the compulsion to repeat. Quote by Peter Levine, frequent reenactment is the most intriguing and complex symptom of trauma. Reenactment may be the most important symptom in all of the traumatic symptoms because it reveals how we heal trauma. 
Reenactment is the unconscious compulsion to repeat behaviors that allow the original trauma to play out again because the psyche is seeking resolution by giving the organism another opportunity to choose a new adaptive response. There's a story Levine shares of watching two tiger cubs that were chased up a tree by a hyena. Once the hyena left, the cubs slowly climbed down and began playing. All mammals demonstrate play behavior. The insight Levine saw was that the cubs were replaying the chase down that they just survived. They each explored new evasive maneuvers, ran up different trees, and explored some defensive attacks on each other. Children who experience trauma will do this too. If you give them toys to play with, they tend to reenact the traumatic experience. Levine proposes that the evolutionary function of play is to practice survival skills. And when it comes to trauma, play is an insight into the function of the demonic symptom. Psyche is seeking growth. It seems to be that the ultimate function of life is to constantly seek to learn new adaptive behaviors. Trauma is entropy embracing psyche so that growth can be born. The force that animates your being wants to learn what the adaptive behaviors would have been in the presence of the trauma, and it will unconsciously seek the situation again and again until it can find the new adaptive behavior. I call this the daemonic symptom because the Greek idea of the daemon is that each of us are born with an inner guide whose purpose is to help us become who we are meant to be. And to become who we could be, we will have to face, process, and integrate all the traumas that we've experienced along our life path. These reenactments are often played out in intimate relationships, work situations, repeated accidents, bad luck, and through psychosomatic or chronic diseases. There is a famous story from the renowned trauma researcher Bezel van der Kolk, who helped a man with a dramatic reenactment pattern. On July 5th, in the late 1980s, a man walked into a convenience store at 6.30 a.m. Holding his finger in his pocket to simulate a gun, he demanded that the cashier give him the contents of the cash register. Having collected about $5 in change, the man returned to his car, where he remained until the police arrived. When the police came, the young man got out of his car and with his finger again in his pocket announced that he had a gun that everyone should stay away from him. Luckily, he was taken into custody without being shot. At the police station, the officer who looked up the man's record discovered that he had committed six other so-called, quote, armed robberies over the past 15 years, all of them at 6.30 in the morning on July 5th. Upon learning that the man was a Vietnam veteran, the police surmised that this was more than coincidence. They took him to a nearby VA hospital where Dr. Kolk had the opportunity to speak with him. Dr. Kolk asked the man directly, what happened to you on July 5th at 6.30 in the morning? He responded immediately. While he was in Vietnam, the man's platoon had been ambushed by the Viet Cong. Everyone had been killed except himself and his friend Jim. The date was July 4th. Darkness fell and the helicopters were unable to evacuate them. 
They spent a terrifying night together huddled in a rice paddy surrounded by the Viet Cong. At about 3.30 in the morning, Jim was hit in the chest by a Viet Cong bullet. He died in his friend's arms at 6.30 on the morning of July 5th. By staging the robberies, the man was recreating the firefight that had resulted in the death of his friend. By provoking the police to join the reenactment, the vet had orchestrated the cast of characters needed to play the Viet Cong. He did not want to hurt anyone, so he used his fingers instead of a gun. He then brought the situation to a climax to be able to elicit the help that he needed to heal his psychic wounds. That act helped him resolve his anguish, grief, and guilt about the death of his friend and the horrors of war. This is an extreme example that reveals the essence. Trauma presents a question to the organism. Traumatic symptoms are messages from the psyche to the organism that the question has not been answered. Let's explore how to answer the question. Healing trauma. Awareness plus agency equals alchemy. It is important to understand that any and all of these symptoms can appear no matter what kind of event caused the trauma. And these symptoms can and will disappear when the trauma is healed. In order to heal the trauma, we need to learn to trust the messages our bodies are giving us. The symptoms of trauma are eternal, internal wake-up calls. If we learn how to listen to these calls, how to increase the awareness in our bodies, and finally, how to use these messages, we can begin to heal our traumas. Peter Levine. Let's take a moment to review what we've learned again. There are two universal forces embracing each other that give rise to our lives, psyche and entropy. Psyche is the will to life. Entropy is the will to death. When they meet, they give birth to growth. Trauma is a kind of mini-death, a wound, from which we receive the call from the Gnostic Gospels. If you bring forth that which is within you, what you bring forth will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. There are three types of trauma wounds. Number one is narrative trauma. Number two is shock trauma. And number three is developmental trauma. Narrative trauma are wounds to the artist. Shock trauma are wounds to the animal, and developmental trauma are wounds to the inner child, the young animal, and the young artist. Unprocessed narrative trauma tends to lead to depression, and at its most extreme, psychotic breaks. Unprocessed shock trauma tends to lead to classic PTSD symptoms, and unprocessed developmental trauma tends to weave together both narrative and shock trauma symptoms. All three can be processed by, number one, cultivating awareness, number two, reclaiming agency, and number three, allowing alchemy. Healing trauma begins with cultivating awareness, specifically what is called the felt sense. And I'll explain more of this soon. Once the felt sense is learned, we can explore the traumatic sensations in our emotional body. And this will unlock the natural healing intelligence that will seek physical or symbolic resolution. And this will lead to a new sense of reclaimed power 
that transforms the traumatized person into a new being. With awareness and a liberated emotional body, we can finally integrate the trauma into the story of our lives, which allows us to, if we choose, transform our trauma into medicine that will help others. So number one is cultivating awareness, the felt sense. Trauma is inevitable. Being stuck in the trauma response is not. Recall the polar bear from before. Because it was connected to its instincts, it intuitively knew how to process the powerful energy that seized it during its flight from the helicopter. Your body has this natural intelligence, and it will heal when you learn how to not resist what you feel. The felt sense is how we do this. The felt sense is the ability to non-judgmentally witness the raw sensations that are present in the body. If you ask someone how they are feeling, most people will say something like good, bad, scared, etc. These are actually not feelings. These are labels for sensations. These are judgments of sensations. Good might mean if you could connect to the felt sense. I feel an enjoyable lightness in my entire body and a general sense of calm in my mind. Bad might mean, I feel an emptiness in my stomach and a tightness in my throat and an unsettled feeling in my mind. Scared might mean, I feel an uneasiness in my body, like there is a feeling of impending doom and a constriction in my stomach. The first step to healing trauma is learning how to non-judgmentally notice the raw sensations in our bodies. This is called the felt sense and was made famous by Peter Levine. He created what's called somatic experiencing, which is a type of therapy that teaches people how to cultivate the felt sense. Here is a technique for cultivating the felt sense that's very powerful. This is a quote from Peter Levine. For 10 minutes or so each day, take a gentle, pulsing shower in the following way. At a cool or slightly warm temperature setting, expose your entire body to the pulsing water. Put your full awareness into the region of your body where the rhythmical stimulation is focused. Let your consciousness move to each part of your body as you rotate. Hold the back of your hands to the shower head then the palms and the wrists, then both sides of your arm, shoulders, underarms, etc. Be sure to include every part of your body, head, forehead, neck, chest, back, legs, pelvis, hips, thighs, ankles, and feet. Pay attention to the sensation in each area, even if it feels blank or numb or painful. And while you do this, say out loud, this is my head. This is my neck, and I welcome you home. Another similar awakening is to gently slap the different parts of your body briskly. Again, this will help reestablish a sense of a body with skin sensation when done regularly over time. For more practices to cultivate the felt sense, check out Peter Levine's book, Healing Trauma. The goal of cultivating awareness is to bring our consciousness back into our body. Here are some other practices, techniques, and therapies that can help cultivate the felt sense. The most powerful one is mindfulness meditation, yoga, tai chi, 
Qigong, Aikido, Judo, Taekwondo, Kendo, Jiu-Jitsu, Breathwork, Chanting, Rhythmic Drumming, Therapeutic Massage, Craniosacral Therapy, Acupuncture, Sensory Motor Psychotherapy, Biofeedback Training, and EMDR. Number two is reclaiming agency. This is completing the act. Cultivating the felt sense allows us to enter the most powerful phase of healing trauma, reclaiming agency by completing the act. Peter Levine discovered this and the origin story has become legend. The woman who ran from the tiger. In the late 1960s, Peter Levine was treating a woman who was having frequent panic attacks, along with a host of other symptoms for years and her prior doctor visits could not make sense of. As he began to put her through some relaxation techniques, he noticed her heart rate began to drop and drop and drop. Her heart rate fell into the 30s and he began to get worried. Quote, Surrendering to my own intense fear, yet somehow managing to remain present, I had a fleeting vision of a tiger jumping towards us. Swept along with the experience, I exclaimed loudly, You are being attacked by a large tiger. See the tiger as it comes at you. Run towards the tree. Climb it. Escape. To my surprise, her legs started trembling in running movements. She let out a blood-curling scream that brought in a passing police officer. Fortunately, my office partner somehow managed to explain the situation. She began to tremble and shake and sob in full-bodied convulsive waves. Nancy continued to shake for almost an hour. She recalled a terrifying memory from her childhood. When she was three years old, she had been strapped to a table for a tonsillectomy. The anesthesia was ether. Unable to move and feeling suffocated, which is a common reaction to ether, she had terrifying hallucinations. This early experience had a deep impact on her. As a result, she had become physiologically stuck in the freeze response. In other words, her body had literally resigned itself to a state where the act of escaping could not exist. Along with this resignation came the pervasive loss of her real and vital self, as well as loss of a secure, spontaneous personality. After the breakthrough that came in our initial visit, Nancy left my office feeling, her words, quote, like she had herself again. Although we continued to work together for a few more sessions, where she gently trembled and shook, the anxiety attack she experienced that day was her last. She stopped taking medication to control her attacks and subsequently entered graduate school, where she completed her doctorate without relapse. I now know that it was not the dramatic emotional catharsis and reliving of her childhood tonsillectomy that was catalytic in her recovery, but the discharge of energy that she experienced when she flowed out of her passive, frozen freeze response into an active, successful escape. End quote. That fateful day marked the birth of a revolution in how trauma was understood. Levine, along with a growing tribe of sensitive therapists and healers, are learning that healing trauma is not about reliving the traumatic experience, but rather by helping the animal discharge the blocked survival energy alive in the animal who experienced the trauma.
reclaiming agency. The demonic symptom, reenactment, is the key to understanding what heals trauma. It is evidence that what our psyche is seeking is to complete the act. Nancy's animal needed to let out that scream. It needed to feel free to run as fast as she could away from that experience that happened when she was three. She needed to feel that she could escape and that she did escape and that once she did, her animal for the first time in decades felt that it was safe to rest again. Below is another example of how the felt sense allows the animal to complete the act that liberates the body. This is a YouTube video that you can find, and it's called Somatic Experiencing Ray's Story. Uh, I would highly recommend that you guys go find this video. It's about 25 minutes long, and it's very, very illuminating. The fundamental key to reclaiming agency is to get the animal into a state where it feels safe to drop back into the fight, flight, or freeze response, and then to complete the action. For most people who hold trauma, this is best done under the supervision of trained professionals. Here is a list of the best therapies that I have found that help this. Somatic experiencing, sensory motor psychotherapy, holotropic breathwork, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, and psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy. Each of these experiential practices are powerful techniques that give the animal an opportunity to re-enter and potentially process the stuck energy. Again, I repeat, it is vitally important that if you feel called to use any of these modalities that you find a competent and trained professional to hold the container with you. Below is a full-length documentary that explores MDMA-assisted psychotherapy and its healing effects on PTSD. It is called Trip of Compassion. If you Google it, you can find it on Vimeo for $5. Highly recommend. Stage three, alchemy. The final stage of healing trauma is to, if you choose, let your healing journey become medicine that you share with others to help them heal. In order to do this, we must first integrate our trauma into a story that fits into the story of our lives. Here is a quote from Dr. Kolk, who is one of the leading authorities on healing trauma. While trauma keeps us dumbfounded, the path out of it is paved with words, carefully assembled, piece by piece, until the whole story can be revealed. As long as you keep secrets and suppress information, you are fundamentally at war with yourself. Hiding your core feelings takes an enormous amount of energy, it saps your motivation to pursue worthwhile goals, and it leaves you feeling bored and shut down. Meanwhile, stress hormones keep flooding your body, leading to headaches, muscle aches, problems with your bowels or sexual function, and irrational behaviors that may embarrass you and hurt the people around you. Only after you identify the source of these responses can you start using your feelings as signals of problems that require your urgent attention. James Pennebaker's groundbreaking work on expressive writing was found that when we integrate our stories of trauma into our overall life story, we complete the healing journey. 
This can only be done once we have, quote, brought our animal home by completing the adaptive action explained in the previous section. Then we can tell a beautiful story. When we find the meaning and the blessing in our traumatic experiences and we articulate them to ourselves, the animal and the artist can finally rest. To do this, I recommend my journaling course or Penna Baker's book, Expressive Writing. Once this is done, the final step is to share your healing journey with others. You don't have to do this, ever, but what I have found through my research and my experience as a coach and as a student of life is that the ultimate alchemy of trauma comes when we share our story of healing with our tribe. We are social animals. Wired into the deepest core of our being is to be one of service to the people that we love. And nothing has given me more strength in my darkest moments than remembering that if I can make it through this experience, and if I don't look away, and I don't hide, and I don't lie, I will be able to share my path back to love with the people that I care about, and it can help them. The final stage of alchemy, of alchemizing our trauma, is to do what the people in the videos above have done. Share your story. To end, I want to share the myth that I believe best represents trauma and trauma healed. The myth of trauma. Quote by Joseph Campbell. A myth is something that has never happened, but is happening all the time. Myths are metaphors of spiritual potentiality in the human being, and the same powers that animate our life animate the life of the world. All the gods, all the heavens, all the worlds are within us. They are magnified dreams, and dreams are manifestations and image of the energies of the body in conflict with each other. That is what myth is. Myth is manifestation in symbolic images and metaphorical images of the energies of the organs of the body in conflict with each other. Myths are to a culture what dreams are to the individual. They are both manifestations of psyche and entropy colliding. Dreams are symbolic representations of specific instincts and emotions that are alive in the dreamer's animal. In most dreams, the characters, environments, and the weird actions performed are not literal. Rather, they are emotion-laden creations by the animal to communicate to the artist what is currently being processed in the psyche. Dreams are the animal communicating with the artist. A dream of you being chased by a murderer is not about your physical life being in danger. It may be that you've had a nagging feeling in your gut for months that your current life is a lie and that you don't want to face it. If you did face it, the ignored truth would kill your current life, and so you dream of being chased by a murderer. The murderer represents the energy in you that is nagging you, daggering you and that you are running from it. A dream about a city being hit by an earthquake, people screaming, and the sense that the world is ending is not a prophecy of the apocalypse. Rather, you likely have recently learned something or did something that completely changed your understanding of life and to the psyche this feels like the end of the world.
The world ending represents the energy in you that felt like your world got turned upside down by the new truth that you've learned. Dreams are psyche processing the archetypical energies alive in the individual animal. Myths are psyche processing the archetypical energies alive in the collective animal. Trauma has been an archetypical energy the collective has been processing for aeons. And the Greek myth of Medusa is the best myth that I have found that represents what trauma is. I thought I knew this myth from my childhood, but I went back to Ovid's Metamorphoses and discovered her origin story. Before Medusa became Medusa, she was a priestess at Athena's temple. She was regarded as one of the most beautiful mortals in the Greek world. One night in Athena's sacred halls, Poseidon came and raped this young maiden. Athena, when she found out, punished the priestess by turning her into Medusa. There is something eerie and profoundly insightful that the oldest myth in Western civilization that archetypically represents trauma begins with rape and that the one raped was punished. I don't feel Medusa gets the attention, nuance, and care that she deserves. I think she is one of the untold heroes of Greek mythology, and to fully understand trauma, her story deserves a retelling. Medusa Retold Once upon a time, there was a beautiful maiden who was one of the priestesses at the temple of the goddess Athena. She was an innocent child who lived a simple life. She cleaned the grounds, tended the plants, and cared for the animals and prayed to her goddess. Our maiden's beauty was transcendent, and her era tragic. Poseidon, one of the most powerful gods in the realm, saw her beauty and on the night that would change her life, raped her on Athena's temple floor. In a cruel twist of fate and a function of her times, our maiden was punished by Athena for allowing such an act to happen in her sacred palace. The punishment was the birth of Medusa. Cursed by Athena, our maiden's hair was turned into a nest of vicious, slithering snakes, and her face became the canvas for a rage so powerful, any creature that met her eyes was turned to stone. Medusa means guardian, and she became the fiercest guardian of Athena's island and one of the most feared monsters in the Greek world. In a faraway land, there was a young hero who was given an impossible task by a corrupt king. Bring me the head of Medusa. Our brash hero, Perseus, agreed and went on his quest. Athena came to him in his sleep and provided him divine aid. She gave him her shield and instructed he only look at Medusa through its reflection, for her gaze would turn him to stone. She also gave him a magical sword that would cut through anything. He awoke with his shield, sword, and guidance and sailed to the island that Medusa guarded. As he stepped into the island, Medusa, remembering what happened the last time she saw a man, rose into ecstatic rage. Her snakes writhed and screamed and her eyes beamed their cursed power. Perseus used his shield to track her movements, and once he was within striking distance, slayed our betrayed maiden, severing her head from her body. And out of her body sprung her two children, fully formed. 
Pegasus, the beautiful winged horse, and her brother, Chrysor, a powerful warrior holding a golden sword. Perseus stood in awe at the grandeur of these beings. As he held the head of the most feared monster in the realm, he saw her body melt to reveal the fully formed, sleeping body of our beautiful maiden. Pegasus and Chrysor thanked Perseus for freeing their mother as they knelt down to care for her. Chrysor placed his golden sword in his mother's right hand and lifted her onto Pegasus, who took flight. Chrysor and Perseus followed as all met at the temple of Athena. As the four entered the hollowed hall together, Athena came to Medusa, kissed her forehead, and brought her back to life. With her son and daughter by her side, Medusa returned to her life of tending to the sacred temple, cultivating the plants and caring for the animals. And she did it with a new sense of peace and power. Where before she was only innocent, now she knew aggression, carried Chrysor's golden sword, and could fly on the back of Pegasus. She did not fear the return of Poseidon or any man like him. And one day, after the young Perseus had finished his adolescent need to prove himself heroic, he returned to the sacred island with Medusa's snakes. He planted them in her sacred garden, and the tree that grew from them bore a fruit that helped the sick be reborn when they ate it. Medusa would spend the rest of her life healing those who pilgrimage to her island by feeding them her fruit, teaching them to garden, and showing them how to yield the golden truth inside each of them. This is the myth of trauma, and trauma healed. Interpreting Medusa's Myth Medusa is not a monster. She is a heroine of the highest order. She is the goddess of trauma healed. Athena is Psyche. At first glance, her punishment of Medusa appears cruel, and maybe on some level it is. But as we see the myth unfold, Athena is guiding behind the scenes always to bring Medusa to her healing. Poseidon, the sacred wounder, is entropy. He is the embodiment of all the forces that will wound us through our lives. He is a god. He cannot be stopped. That the violation happened in Athena's temple is telling. Something about this act, behind the comprehension of the ego, is sacred. It is the beginning of a journey. Athena transforming her priestess into Medusa is what happens when trauma enters our lives. Her writhing snakes are a symbol for our hypervigilance, our rage, our terror, our guilt, and our shame. The snakes are our coping patterns, our addictions, and all the behaviors we manifest when the wound is unhealed. Her gaze is the hallmark of trauma. It is the manifestation of the freeze response, that ancient primordial instinct that dwells in all of us. And then there is Perseus. He is a symbol for the heroic journey we each will have to take to face our trauma. Once he commits to face trauma, Athena, Psyche, comes to guide him. The commitment calls forward our inner intelligence, and the key is her shield. Her shield is the felt sense. What heals trauma is not to look directly at it, but to look at its reflections through the felt sense of the sensations in the body. The reflection of Medusa are the symptoms of trauma that arise in our body as raw sensations. When we cultivate the heroic courage to face the reflection of our inner Medusa, 
with awareness, we are able to liberate her. The beheading of Medusa is the liberation. This is reclaiming agency. From this act springs Pegasus and Chrysor. Horses are some of the oldest symbols for the majesty of the power of the body. A winged horse symbolizes the vital life energy of the body being freed. Pegasus unbound is our reclamation of our body. The sword is one of the oldest symbols humanity has used to represent articulated truth. Truth cuts through illusion and liberating our body from the traumatic response liberates our ability to articulate our trauma as a story. And thus, Medusa is reborn. In the sacred temple of Psyche, she is revived. Where before she was an innocent girl, she is now a wise queen. As are we when we heal our trauma, our body's vital energy will be freed. We will have our Pegasus. Our ability to articulate our truth will be freed and we will have Chrysor. And this allows the final scene to become reality. If we choose, we will be able to use our trauma and our healing of our trauma as a sacred healing place that we can share with others as they embark on their healing journey. Our trauma healed is our fruit that we bear on the great tree of Psyche that we can share with our tribe. Conclusion This is the first draft by a novice to trauma that will evolve with your help. I've been staring at this article for two months. There will likely be spelling errors, spots that don't make sense, parts that need elaborating, parts missing, and questions you may have. You can help me make this a more beautiful and effective act of service by commenting. Ask your questions, share your confusion, and let me know of any resources that have helped you, things I may have missed, or anything else that arises in you as you read this. Trauma is one of the most important aspects of our nature that deserves greater understanding, and I am committed to being a voice for this sacred wound and its healing. Thank you for your awareness, for listening up to this point, and for adding to the healing of the collective by learning this information sharing this information, and saying yes to your own healing journey. I love you. Thank you. Namaste.